Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you that you've made us part of your people. We pray now that you would help us to better understand your word and to be changed, to be like our Savior. We thank you that you haven't left us alone. You've said that you will never leave us or forsake us so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Pray that that might be our disposition as we look at your word and as we begin a new week. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. A couple weeks ago, Debbie and I spent part of a week on the Outer Banks. It's the first time we'd been there, and uh, it was nice to be there with friends and enjoy their company, and one of the things that we were able to do is go to Kitty Hawk and see the memorial to the Wright brothers. Pretty impressive. It's amazing to me as I look at that display how they were able to find a way to get a plane up in the air. And I thought to myself, I think maybe there's a metaphor here that will help us as we look at these verses we just read. What would that be? I thought they were somehow able to get the relationship between pressure and lift. Hadn't thought about it very much. And I thought, I'll be able to explain this in just a couple sentences at the beginning of my sermon. And then my father's words came to me. He said, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and forever remove all doubt. And so I am not going to explain how pressure lifts a plane into the air. Take my word for it. It does. Pressure obstacles opposition what do they do in the life of a Christian they have great potential for future usefulness analogous to what happens when a plane gets up in the air the pressure lifts the plane to take it to places unknown that's the way opposition and obstacles function in the life of God's people if you have a Bible, please turn to Acts chapter 22. We're going to look at those verses that John just read for us. We're going to start with verse 30 and then go down through verse 11 of chapter 23. Now, I think a word of explanation <clears throat> is in order here. References made to somebody who is unnamed in verse 30. So let's talk about him. His name is Claudius Lysias. He is also described in Acts as a tribune, and that word has in its composition something about his responsibility. A tribune was somebody who was a military leader over a thousand troops. That's who Claudius Lysias is. We're told about him in verse 30, and we'll come back to that in just a minute. And then there's a little break, and then we go to verses 1 through 5 at the beginning of chapter 23, and we find Paul hitting a bump in the road, a significant bump in the road. 
That is increased in verses 6 and 7. More struggle. And then in verse 8, Paul takes a little break and he makes an editorial comment almost over on the side here. Verses 9 and 10, another bump in the road, and then it's resolved in, chapter, in verse 11, and I think it's resolved in a way that will give you great encouragement, hope, whatever the bumps in the road are which you face today. So now let's look back at the way in which Luke organizes this. Verse 30, what happens? Claudius Lysias can't get the picture. He can't understand why Jews would be interested in killing a fellow Jew. Now, it doesn't tell us that in verse 30. It tells us that in the previous section that we looked at uh, a couple weeks ago. But that's the issue. He can't get it through his head. Why would these Jews want to kill another Jew who appears to be an upstanding citizen? And so we read in verse 30, he's now going to find the real reason. See it? What's the real reason? We don't know yet. But let's also remind ourselves that this is Claudius Lysias, who is a Roman slash, let's say it, Gentile military leader. He's trying to figure out what's going on in Judaism. And so he says, because he's a man of some authority, he says to the Jewish uh, authorities, I want you to assemble so that I can hear and we can hear together Paul's situation. I want to know what's really going on. Now, just a word about the Jews. There were thousands of them in Jerusalem at the time, and they had a system of organizing themselves so that there were priests who were responsible for worship in the temple. But then, out of all of those, there was a special subset of priests, which are called the council here in verse 30, and or also the Sanhedrin. They were the cream of the crop of priests. And then above them was the high priest, who you see is mentioned in verses 1 and following. What was the high priest's function? He was kind of the manager of all the other priests and his name is Ananias. Now, what do we know about Ananias? Not very much from the Bible. The Bible doesn't tell us very much about him at all. He's a high priest, yes. But other than that, however, we are not left in the dark about this important Jewish man. Josephus, a historian at the time, has a great deal to say about him. And among other things, we learn that Ananias was greedy, cruel, and abusive. And then one other thing about Ananias, which we do get from the text, and that is his name means gracious. I know. We'll get to it in a minute. His name means gracious. So... Paul stands before the council now, and we don't know what Paul expected. Paul had just been delivered from what appeared to be uh, nearly certain death. And so now he's in front of the council, and the Jews are going to kind of evaluate his situation. What do you imagine was going through his mind? The Bible doesn't tell us, but my suspicion is this. 
as Paul stood there, he did not anticipate a very good outcome. Why would he? The Jews of the street want to kill him. This Sanhedrin, they are not too friendly a group either. And so he stands before them and he says, Men, brothers, I am innocent before God up to this day. Quite a claim to make. How could Paul do that? Well, he's doing it out of his own relationship to Jesus. And the Bible tells us that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. He had been a great sinner, no question. But he has a greater Savior. So he says, I'm innocent. And then our friend Ananias gets into the mix. You see the next thing that happens? He turns to somebody who's part of this council, and he says, punch him in the mouth. And they do. Ananias is simply bringing to the surface what's latent in his life. He's a control freak. I know there are none here today, but he's a control freak. And what he's going to do is he's going to put Paul in his place, and he says, punch him. And Paul's response is notable for a couple reasons. First of all, he says, you whitewashed wall, God is going to strike you. Paul's response is notable because he accurately names the situation. What does it mean when he says, you whitewashed wall. Well, that's an image that comes to us from the Old Testament, first of all. If you take your Bible and you turn in Ezekiel to chapter 13, you'll see that in verses 10 through 16, the Lord describes prophets that are unfaithful to him as whitewashed walls. And then if you just turn over to Matthew chapter 23, and look at verses, I think it's 27 and 28. Uh, if you look there, you see Jesus saying to the religious leaders of his day, you are like whitewashed sepulchers. Now, what's the imagery? It's this. You appear a certain way on the outside, and on the inside, things are very different. It's a graphic way of saying you are a hypocrite. That's Paul's allegation toward Ananias. Now, we say to ourselves, well, why would he say that? Uh, if you turn your Bible to John chapter 7 and look at verse 51, Jesus says that a person ought to be heard before he's judged. And in this case, Ananias is not going to give Paul the common courtesy of hearing his plea before he makes a judgment on him. So he says to Ananias, you whitewashed sepulcher, God's going to judge you, and then somebody else in the group around Paul say, hey, do you know that he is the high priest? Paul says, I didn't know that. Now, commentators are a little flummoxed by why Paul would say that. You would think that he would have recognized it. One possibility, and I don't know why he didn't know that he was the high priest, uh, one possibility is, you know, Paul makes reference to his poor eyesight. Maybe he couldn't see him. Maybe there was some other reason. But for whatever reason, he says, I, I didn't realize it. And then Paul confesses his wrong. He cites Exodus 
chapter 22, I think it's verse 28. He says, oh, you ought not to revile one of your rulers. Let's just hit the pause button for a moment here. What is Luke pointing out? Not only that Ananias is a control freak and is abusive toward Paul, but also that Paul was wrong in the way in which he responds to this high priest. In other words, the Lord has an authority structure in the world. And the fifth commandment makes it clear. Honor your father and mother. That means people are to honor those that are in authority over them. Why? Because that's the way God has made life to be. So let's first of all now just ask ourselves the question, is Ananias living up to his name? Hardly. And it's not a small step to go from there to ask this question, are you living up to your name? In addition to that, we can also ask this question. To what extent do you honor those that God has placed in authority over you? Kids, are you honoring your parents? So that's verses 1 through 5. We've looked at the setting with Claudius. He's trying to get to the bottom of this. He sees something of Jewish reaction in verses 1 through 5. Paul hits a significant bump in the road. This is a pressure point. Let me say it that way. There's an obstacle here. There's opposition against Paul. But now what happens in verses 5 and 6? That's the next one. Well, things go from bad to worse. Verses 5, uh, I'm sorry, verses 6 and 7. Uh, Verses 1 to 5, there's this interaction with Ananias, and Paul's punched in the mouth, and then there's that exchange. But now in verses 6 and 7, what happens? Well, as this whole narrative is developing, Paul gets the sense that the Sanhedrin, this Jewish council, is a divided group. Some are Pharisees, and some are Sadducees, and Paul is a Pharisee, and he's going to get some mileage now out of his background. Since he's on trial anyway, why not? So what does he do? He says, I am a Pharisee. I'm a son of a Pharisee, and I believe in the resurrection. And it's because of my confidence in the resurrection that I am on trial now. And the Sanhedrin can't stand it. See what happens? End of the verse, the end of that section tells us they become divided. How divided? Well, the Greek word is the one from which we get our English word schizophrenia. They're divided. Uh, how come? How could the ruling body of the Jewish people be divided? We'll get to that in a minute. What does Paul say? He says, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a son of, the, of a Pharisee. I'm here on trial because of the resurrection. Why? 
because Paul had come to the place where he had entrusted his life to Jesus. He had surrendered control to Christ, and he said, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. He is making a statement here that any Christian makes. What do we do when we recite the Apostles' Creed? Believe in God the Father, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under the was crucified, was raised. He sits at the right hand of the Father. Every Christian confesses that Jesus has been raised from the dead. That was Paul's understanding, but it wasn't just Paul's understanding because of his encounter with Christ. It was Paul's understanding because he understood the whole Bible. What does the Old Testament tell us? Psalm 23, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 15, who can live with God forever? One who lives an upright life. The Old Testament and the New Testament together bear witness to the truth of the resurrection. And Christians affirm that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Is that your affirmation today? Would you say, I believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead? There's salvation in none other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved than the name of Jesus, Paul tells us. So now let's go back to the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Why is it that they can't get along? It kind of reminds me of our current political situation. You know, people can't pass a budget because they're hung up on whatever they're hung up on. Well, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they disagree on a number of things. And that brings us then to verse 8. Paul, Luke makes this kind of comment on the side where he's explaining, apparently for Gentile readers, why there would be this intramural squabble between Pharisees and Sadducees. He says... The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees do believe in the resurrection, and they believe in angels, and they believe in spirits. So now we have a better understanding about why there's this tension. But there's another reason that there's all this fighting going on, and it's this. Sadducees and Pharisees agreed on one thing. They agreed on the way to get to heaven. And it was this, you want to get to heaven? Then you keep the law. You be obedient. Make a list of the Ten Commandments. You want to get to heaven? You keep those Ten Commandments. They were legalists. And so they can be united in their legalism even though they have divergent paths as to what that legalism constitutes. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were agreed on another point. And to understand that, we need to back up just a little bit. If you remember back in Acts 15, there was what's called the Jerusalem Council. And the leaders of the emerging Christian church said, what are we to do as Jews? What are we to do with Gentiles who want to follow the Lord? 
Do they have to become Jews? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to be part of temple and Jewish cultural practices in order to be part of the people of God? And in Acts 15, the church says, no, they don't. They need to believe that Jesus is their Savior, and they can keep their cultural patterns as long as they don't violate some specifics. Eating meats sacrificed to idols, to be one of them. All right, so now what, comes, now what happens is Paul comes into town, and he is going to talk with the Christian leaders, and there's this sense that Paul is suggesting that Gentiles can actually be part of the people of God without becoming Jewish. And that's what sets off the Jews. And that's one of the things that sets off the Sanhedrin. Because what Paul is doing is he ex is exposing racism. By Jewish thinking, Jewish people have a leg up on Gentiles, on all Gentiles. And what Paul is saying is, no, the gospel makes Jew and Gentile equal. And because they're equal, they're to accept one another. And the Jews cannot stand that. So Paul has hit another bump in the road. And we see it there in verses 6 and 7. There is one more. If verses 1 through 5 lay out something that was bad, and verses 6 and 7 lay out something that is worse, Verses 9 and 10 pinpoint what's worser. And what's worser is this. Well, what is it? Verses 9 and 10. You see it? The, the Sanhedrin and the... Sadducees, Pharisees are so exercised that they now are going to tear Paul apart. And Claudius, Lysias, the military man, sees this, and the Bible says that he's afraid. He may have been afraid for his job, but he probably was also afraid for what's going to happen to Paul because we're told they're trying to tear him apart. It's a graphic word. Remember back in the book of Judges where uh, Samson and Delilah are interacting and she's trying to find out what gives him his strength so that she can tell the, Pharis uh, the uh, Philistines? He says at one point, he says, look, do this. Get some new cords, tie them around me, and I will become just like any other weakling. And she does. She says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And the Bible says he snapped those cords. He broke them. That's the same word that's used here to describe what Claudius Lysias thinks is going to happen to Paul. He is going to be torn apart by the rage that has now been engendered between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so he intervenes. He sends in his troops. They rescue Paul and they take him back to the barracks. Talk about being in a pressure cooker. Talk about experiencing opposition. 
talk about experiencing obstacles. What will happen to Paul? Well, look at verse 11. What's it say? It says that that night... Now, interestingly, this has been quite a day. We are told back in chapter 23, verse 30, the next day. And now we're over here at the night. So this has all transpired during this day. It's been quite a day of pressure. And now we're told that night Jesus appears to Paul. And what does he say to him? He says, cheer up. Be encouraged. Can you imagine a guy that we think may have been in danger of dying a few days ago, and now he's close to death? It looks like here, the Lord says to him, cheer up, Paul. Be encouraged. It is such a wonderful statement, properly understood. And then he goes on and he says, here's the reason for you to, be, to cheer up. You ought to cheer up because... As you have witnessed for me here in Jerusalem, now you're going to witness for me in Rome. How's that going to happen? Paul's back in the barracks. We aren't told. You have to come back next week. You'll get a better sense then. But that's the promise. And the reason that the Lord is promising that is because of his agenda. As you have witnessed for me here in Jerusalem, so you're going to witness for me in Rome. That is to say, the gospel will not be stopped. The gospel is on a movement. And as the Lord told Israel back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So now we see it again here as Jesus comes to Paul and says, Paul, you're going to Rome, the ends of the earth. The gospel is going to get to those pagan peoples because I have decreed it. Amazing. All right, now we want to ask this question. Where are you in relation to Paul? Sort of a strange question, isn't it? He lived a long time ago in Israel. I'm here in the U.S., so lots of answers to give. But I'm not asking that question. I'm asking, in relation to God's timeline and history, where are you in relation to Paul? And the answer is this, if you're wondering. Paul lived after the death and resurrection of Christ. And Paul lived before the second coming of Christ. And where do you live? After the death and resurrection of Christ and before the coming of Christ. And because we live in this interim period, the promise that comes to Paul is a promise that God makes to you. You're not alone in this world. You're not alone with the pressure and the obstacles that face you. You're not alone because Jesus is with you and he has given you, let me say it this way, Jesus has given you a worldwide focus to your life so that you can be a blessing to people that don't have the gospel right now. And it's different from each of us. We have some people that are in part fulfilling that worldwide place in Turkey. And we also pray for Mariana, who's up in Alaska. And we pray for other people that are scattered around the world. And as you're praying, would you please pray for Christians in Armenia today? 100,000 Armenians have been driven from their homes in the last week or so. 
Imagine that crush of humanity and the needs and opportunities there. Well, you live in this same place that Paul lived, and God's promise to you, to Paul, is God's promise to you. Steve Lawson, who's a pretty well-known pastor, says when you apply a passage of scripture, you want to ask a series of questions. And so I want to tick down through some of those right now with you. He says, is there any example to follow here? Yeah. Paul says, as I follow Christ, you follow me. Paul's commitment to follow Jesus through these bumps and this pressure is an example for you to follow. Is there any temptation to resist? Yes. Being disrespectful to somebody who's in a position of authority. Is there any sin to confess? Perhaps. Same. Is there any hope to be gained? Absolutely. Look at verse 11. I'm going to be with you, Paul. I'm going to use you because my purposes will not fail in this world. Jesus is a full-service Savior. He gives lift in the face of difficulties. He takes pressure, and he creates new opportunities in the middle of those pressures. And so you have a reason to begin this week with great optimism, no matter what obstacles, no matter what opposition is in your path. Is that a good word or what? Down through the years, people have thought about that as a good word. Let me give you one current, uh, not exactly current, but uh, a more contemporary example. Have you ever heard of Bethany Hamilton? Anybody? One person. Bethany Hamilton. Uh, two, three. Okay. All right, let me tell the rest of you about Beth Bethany Hamilton. Uh, as a 13-year-old, she was a very gifted surfer. And then a 14-foot tiger shark came along and took off one arm. What would she do? It's a tragedy to lose a limb like that. Within 26 days, she was back on her surfboard. But more than that, the Lord blessed her life, so she's now married, has some kids. And beyond that, is committed to sharing Christ with those who are amputees. So she has a ministry called, I think it's called Friends of Bethany. You can check it out. Uh, if you want to get online, go to Soul, Sur Soul Surfer. And she has a book about her experience. But she's a committed Christian. She's somebody who knows something about obstacles and knows something about opposition. And somebody who has been propelled by that experience to give herself more faithfully to the Lord Jesus, to make his name known. I wonder if that would be your orientation this morning. I'm going to give you my best, Jesus, whatever is before me, for as long as you want, wherever you have me. And isn't that what communion is all about? As often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we show forth the word is proclaimed, the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, we thank you that you're our God, that you raised Jesus from the dead, that you've made us your people, even though we're Gentiles. And thank you that it's your purpose 
though Claudius never got much clarification on why there was this fighting. It's your purpose that all peoples would be blessed through the gospel. Help us to be your instruments in this coming week. And we pray these things with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper now. Let me see. Bill, you're playing the piano. So, John, John. Uh, Travis, are you up to helping us with communion? If you say no, it's okay. You want to? Oh, Bob, okay. Bob, John, John. We need one more person. Yes. Doug? Yeah.